Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. And thank you that we can be here this morning and continue our study in your word and the Jonah. A time of fellowship today. Father, I pray that you would be with us and that our discussion would be productive, that it would be pleasing to you, and that we would that we would worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to pick back up today on on our inductive study, kind of step-by-step inductive study through the book of Jonah. And we, we were working through interpretation last week, you know, making sense of the things that we've seen, um, different words, phrases that we've seen within the text, uh, different themes or motifs that may show up. So we, we worked through considering the context interpretive correlation so you know, remember when we talk about interpretive correlation that's going to act like guardrails really the whole process is like guardrails but this interpretive correlation is going to give us some guardrails so that when we're interpreting we're interpreting in a way that's consistent with other parts of scripture because as we know scripture doesn't contradict itself so if our interpretation of this particular text is at odds with other texts of Scripture, our interpretation is off. We were looking at determining the meaning of particular words and phrases, and that's where we left off. So we're going to be picking up at thematic correlation today, and we'll be wrapping up with uh, consultation. So consultation being making use of outside resources. So, we, like I said, we considered the context, um, the historical context, the literary context, the theological context. We looked at, you know, we correlated with what shows up in, in a text with other texts in Scripture. We considered significant words and phrases and what they mean and how they contribute to the text. And considering if knowing the meaning of these words and phrase, phrases changes our understanding of, the, of what the text means. So today, we're picking up on thematic correlation. So this, when we talk about thematic correlation, this is, we're looking at what are the major themes or motifs that show up in the text, and how does that correlate with what shows up elsewhere in Scripture. And as we look at these themes and motifs as a whole, what's the meaning that can be drawn from it? So when we look at at Jonah 1, are there themes or motifs that show up in Jonah 1 that likely carry the meaning? And some of this we've talked about already, because something to keep in mind is we're going through these steps each step is not a hard and fast, distinct thing. There, there's going to be a lot of overflow and other uh, overflow and overlap as we move from one into the other. Especially like with interpretive correlation, you know, there's going to be a lot of thematic correlation that shows up, especially as we're identifying, hey, what's showing up elsewhere in Scripture. So. One theme that, I, that came up that we talked about was the theme of the presence of the Lord. So that, that was a particular theme that showed up. Fear, fear was another, yeah, fear is another one. There was a a motif of hurling that shows up in four different times. The men hurled Jonah overboard. They were hurling cargo overboard. The Lord hurled a great wind at them. So we, you know, this idea of hurling 
you know, gives a bit of a, a picture of like, there's a great struggle going on. You know, this, this isn't just a, a mild happening. There, there's a great struggle. Yeah. So yeah, there, so there's a motif of escalation. You know, the storm is bad, but then the storm gets worse. There's an escalation of they start throw, you know, they, they start off with, you know, what's going on? Oh, now we're gonna throw cargo overboard. Whoop, now we're throwing men overboard. So even within the that that motif of hurling. There's also an escalation because what gets hurled overboard escalates as well. There's also a theme of running from the Lord. Yeah, right up at the beginning, and it's, the text starts out right with that in 1 verse 3 makes it very clear three times it's stated in that one verse, Jonah's trying to go to Tarshish. Right after God says, go to Nineveh, Jonah's rebellion is emphasized because three times, it's not just saying, oh, Jonah went to, Jonah said he, you know, Jonah decided to go to Tarshish, so he went, gone on a boat, you know, all the, no, it's emphasized three times, um, he rose to flee to Tarshish. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. So, Jonah's rebellion is emphasized. So that may be a theme as well. Rebellion against God may also be a theme. Because it seems to be something, you know, something of importance to the author. You know, why emphasize it three times he's running to Tarshish if that's not of particular importance? And not just that he's going to Tarshish, because who cares if he's going to Tarshish, except God told him go somewhere else. So we have this theme of rebellion. We have a theme of, you know, a motif of the presence of the Lord, a motif of hurling, we have a, an escalation. So as we see these different themes and motifs as whole, do these show up elsewhere in Scripture? Does rebellion show up elsewhere in Scripture? Okay. Literally the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, if we... You know, if we look at the whole of Scripture, you know, yes, revealed in the pages of Scripture is, you know, God's plan. Of, you know, yes, we see in Scripture, yeah, this is, this is God's revealing His plan of salvation, um, His redemption. But why is redemption and salvation needed if there wasn't rebellion in the first place? You know, the whole the whole of it is predicated on the reality that we're in rebellion. Because if we weren't in rebellion, why is salvation necessary? Where else, you know, where does the theme or this motif of the presence of the Lord show up? Do we know where else this shows up? But specific, are there specifics? Because remember there's, we talked about, you know, is Jonah stand, like, is, when it's talking about the presence of the Lord, is this talking about, you know, God is standing right in front of Jonah and Jonah's trying to get away? You know, are we talking, is this talking about God's literal physical presence in front of Jonah? No, there's nothing in scripture, there's nothing in the text that indicates that this is any type of face-to-face, -face, here's God, here's Jonah, and go. So part of understanding that, that particular motif of the presence of the Lord is understanding that 
the text here isn't talking about a literal physical God is standing in front of Jonah telling him to go. Do you remember from last week when we talked about this idea of the presence of the Lord and what this, what this likely means in this, in this particular text? Well, so last week when we were talking about significant words and phrases, a significant phrase that we identified was the presence of the Lord that shows up, I think, at least three times in this text, probably more. Um, what, did we, what did we kind of settle on that this presence of the Lord means or signifies? Because we, you know, we know God is omnipresent, so there's a certain futility. I know Jonah's trying to get away from God. Well, he's not going to be successful. The writer knows this. Yeah, so there's, yeah, when we're standing in a presence, there's a, there's a certain fellowship. So there's, there's a certain, there's an aspect of, okay, Jonah is fleeing fellowship with God. Does this idea of fellowship with God show up elsewhere in Scripture? Where? Can we draw, can, and can we draw any clarification based on where this shows up elsewhere in Scripture? I mean, we, we see in Revelation the idea of fellowship with God, you know, the wedding feast of the Lamb, you know, were in his presence praising him. So there's an, there's an idea of being in the presence of God. Yeah. Right at the, be, right at the beginning. Running and hiding. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's, that's the first place in Scripture where the idea of the presence of God and certainly fleeing the presence of God shows up. A fear of the presence of God. Yeah. So, to draw correlations of where this type of theme shows up, you know, being in the presence of God is correlated with we're fellowshipping with God. We are in right relationship with God. And fleeing is in an indication of rebellion. So there's that idea of rebellion and not rebellion showing up again. What about hurling? And we talk, you know, this escalation, you know, hurling hurling things overboard, now we're hurling people. There's also the escalation of the storm. Does that, does that particular theme of an escalation show up in Scripture? One that pops into my mind, and it's maybe a little bit of a looser correlation. You know, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, and at one point, you know, we're given the impression as we're reading through that series of chapters where you know, Moses is up on Sinai, the Israelites are at the foot of the mountain acting like a fool. That, but we're given the impression that there's a certain escalation that's happening because at one point, the Israelites are looking at the mountain like, Moses is dead. <laughs> He's not coming back, y'all. Are there other places in Scripture where we see this idea of, of an escalation? And maybe even especially God escalating. Because you know, we see the storm, you know, we're given this idea, or I think we're supposed to be given the, the understanding that yeah, as this storm is growing worse, it's an indication of God's displeasure with Jonah. Because the further, the more Jonah's trying to run from fellowship, the worse this storm is getting. To the point that very seasoned sailors on the ocean are like, we're going to die. We're not, we're not coming back from this. Yeah. 
there's that book again. <laughs> yeah. So we see an example through the tribulation. There's an escalation of God's wrath, of God's judgment. Are there other places? What about the plagues of Egypt? Your river's going to turn to blood. Your river's going to turn to blood. Oh, now I'm taking your firstborn son. And the, I mean, there's a number in between, but each, but each one as we get, as we go through it, we're, we're given the impression, okay, each one is worse than the one before it. There's an escalation of God's judgment on Egypt. So what? <laughs> so we see this pattern of escalation. What can we what type of understanding can we draw from? Okay. There are there are themes in scripture. There are times there are multiple places in scripture where we see this pattern of God's escalation of wrath or God's escalation of judgment on a person or on a people. What meaning can we draw from that? And more specifically, looking at the text in front of us in Jonah, building on our understanding that we can draw from these other texts about escalation, what, what type of meaning or what's the meaning that we can draw from this? A few things that, that come to my mind are... Um, the frequent hardness of the human heart. Okay. Uh, that it takes such extreme measures <laughs> to wake us up. Uh, for Jonah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> because he was asleep in the boat. Um, but yeah, there's just that we are so often stubborn. And then even when Jonah gives the guys the answer, like, all right, this is what you got to do. They're like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And things had to continue to increase in their awfulness. Yeah. So that's one side. So of yeah. So in part, there it's maybe not even the hardness of Jonah's heart because Jonah's like, "You got to throw me over," and they're like, "No, no, we're not going to do that." What about the hardness of the sailors? Then on the other side of the spectrum of we're not, or maybe not other side of the spectrum, but perhaps of this equation on you know looking at God's side of things, that. Um, When God is looking to accomplish his purposes, he's going to accomplish his purposes. And it may take breaking our will to do it, uh, but, but he'll accomplish his purposes. Either with us or in spite of us. Yeah. What about his mercy? That's, that's, that's part of it. That's, yeah. you know, that, I mean, he could have just killed Jonah and yeah. said, I'll use somebody else. But he used the escalating thing to preserve Jonah. As, and at the conclusion here, oh, he's in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights. He got a timeout. Yeah. So things got to that point, and yet that was also, yes, it was an expression of God's displeasure, but it was also culminates in an expression of God's mercy towards Jonah. Yeah. The f yeah. The fa it, as we were kind of talking through that, like it strikes me that there's an escalation of his mercy. Or, well, maybe not an escalation of his mercy, but a demonstration of his mercy because you know, as we see throughout Scripture that you know, God is holy. We're in rebellion. God would be totally justified in just wiping us out. And he could. It's not just he'd be justified in attempting to do so, but maybe he would... No, he's God. He would be successful at doing it. But he chose not to. He chose to have mercy on Jonah. He also chose to have mercy on the sailors. You know, we see... Um, 
we see in verse 16 that ultimately at the end of it, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices and made vows. Does this, this doesn't necessarily mean that they became proselytes or that they, that they converted. But I think we're at least supposed to understand that they, they recognized the one true God. You know, at the end of this, they recognized God. And I think, you know, we see the mercy, you know, right even at the beginning, you know, if we see the escalation as a form of mercy rather than starting right out at the worst possible outcome, there's an escalation. There, there's a choice at any point to turn back, to turn away. You know, God's mercy is there. We see it even right at the beginning where, he said, where he's telling Jonah, a go to Nineveh call out against it. And as we see later on, you know, in, in chapter 3, the Ninevites hear this and they're devastated and they turn away. And God relents on the wrath to come. There's mercy. And then in chapter 4, you know, Jonah talks, <laughs> Jonah says, you know, Lord, this is why I didn't want to go, because I know you're a God of mercy. I knew you would have relented, and I didn't want you to. So as we see maybe a theme of the whole book of Jonah, it starts out, there's a demonstration of God's mercy Chapter 2, Jonah and the fish. Well, that's God's mercy on Jonah. Chapter 3, the Assyrians repent and God relents. There's God's mercy. Chapter 4, Jonah flat out says, you're merciful, that's why I didn't want to go to them. So maybe a theme of the whole, the whole book of Jonah is a theme of mercy. When did we when was the last time we read Jonah and really understood that it's a story of God's mercy? We see Jonah's yeah, yeah, a man got chucked into a really large fish and got spit out. Because he had to go condemn Nineveh because they slapped each other with fishes. No, that's not why. So, before we move on, are there any other themes or motifs that show up in Jonah 1 that can help us understand the meaning that we can draw out of it? Or are we pretty much at, a, do we think we're at a good understanding that you know, Jonah 1 really is, you know, there's a number of different things, you know, why... You know, why would God send a prophet of Israel to people who aren't Israel? Then we see a theme, you know, that, that big question of the text, right, right up front, why would God do this? Then we're seeing this theme of God's mercy. God is merciful. Why would God show mercy to people who aren't Israel? I mean, Israel is his people, we can... We can get that. He's going to show mercy to his people. Why does he show mercy to people who aren't his people? Unless maybe God has bigger plans than just for his people. Again, we begin to see this inkling of something bigger, but we're not given any specifics beyond just, huh, maybe there's something bigger. And maybe there has always been something bigger in store than just God's mercy for his own people. Yeah, there's a tendency... There's a tendency within certain schools of theology 
that to look at, you know, well, God's plan A was the redemption of his people. Well, his people refused. Oh, God's going to plan B. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to send some, you know, we're going to do something else now because plan A failed. But even when we look at one of the Old Testament prophets, we get the idea, and I think we're supposed to get the idea that, huh, maybe plan B was always part of plan A. And maybe plan A didn't fail. But maybe the bigger picture was always part of the plan. You know, we're told this later on in, in the New Testament that, you know, the church was a mystery that wasn't, that until now was not revealed to the prophets. But this is, you know, the events in Jonah, this is eight centuries before Christ. And yet even here, we should understand maybe there was always a bigger plan. Maybe there was always a plan for the people, not just of Israel, but of the world. Something to gnaw on. How much time we got? Okay, we got time to move on. So, as we're going through interpretation, one of the last steps, and there are times where, maybe, as we move on to the last, the last step in interpretation with consultation, consultation, really any of these steps in, in interpretation, and in, in any of these steps within the various stages of um, observation, interpretation, application, there is a temptation to view these as sequential, of first I do this, then I do this, then I do this. The reality is these all tend to run in parallel. You know, we're not necessarily doing I'm only focusing right now on significant words and phrases. I'm not looking at anything else right now. Yeah. The reality is, we're not just going to be doing one thing at a time. Sometimes we will be. But we'll be making multiple observations of, oh, hey, here's a significant word or phrase. Oh, here's a literary feature. I'm noticing this word this significant word and phrase keeps getting repeated throughout. Oh, hey, here's some imagery that's being used here. We're going to be doing all of these at the same time. So to look at consultation is simply, well, after we've gone through the context and interpretive correlation and um, determining the meaning of words and phrases and thematic correlation, well, now we get to the end of... Now we're going to do consultation. Probably at some point along the way, even before now, we will have consulted. Whether it's something as simple as, hey, I've got a footnote in my study Bible, to I'm going to consult some type of commentary or word study helps. Um, or I'm going to consult with a, with a trusted, more learned individual than I on this particular text. Um, my caution when we talk about consultation. Consultation should not be the first thing that we do. Which is better? To read and understand the text or to read and understand what somebody else says about the text? Yeah. We always want to read we always want to read and understand the text. 
because the text, at the end of the day, when we talk about, you know, what, what is the safeguard of errant and wild interpretation? The text. If we're staying true, to the, true and faithful to the text of Scripture, the text of Scripture itself provides the guardrails. But there are some texts of Scripture that aren't always the easiest to understand. And we may read through this and like, okay, I kind of maybe think I might know what's going on. Okay, I've done all this. I'm still not, I don't feel like I'm really getting this in a way that I need to be getting this. So guess what? There is great benefit to consulting third-party resources, good you know, good commentaries, a good study Bible. I mean, there, there are very good study Bibles on the market, you know, they're very, and most major translation, I think actually every major translation of the Bible has a study Bible version where, where schol- you know, biblical scholars and language scholars have come together and they've written notes on difficult to understand verses throughout. Um, you know, I, I personally use the ESV study Bible. I've found the study notes in that to be incredibly helpful. There's several other study Bibles that I'll use. Um, and most people, I would say study Bibles are probably the most accessible resource for people. I mean, you can go into most Christian bookstores and find a decent study Bible. You don't even have to go into a Christian bookstore. You can probably go into most any bookstore and find a decent study Bible. So study Bibles are probably going to be the front, one of the frontline resources for, for consulting with how others have engaged the text. But they're not, it's not the only resource that's available. There are different commentaries. Um, and commentaries are written at all sorts of different levels. Um, some are relatively straightforward and accessible even to a, a more lay individual. And then there are some that are very technical commentaries that rely heavily on the underlying Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic text that you more or less have to have knowledge of the original languages in order to adequately understand it. Um, Probably are not going to be the most helpful third-party resources for everyday Bible study. Um, Ken, can you think of any other types of third-party resources that can be helpful? Uh, Bible handbooks, um, those are helpful. Um, There's... um, Book summary, so like uh, I, I like gotquestions.org has like book summaries on every mm. book of the Bible. Those are really helpful. Uh, Bible dictionaries, uh, encyclopedias, so you could look up uh, Nineveh in a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia and get an entire article that would tell you a lot about the history and the background of Nineveh. That's, that'd be pretty helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I, that those didn't even pop into my mind. So yeah, I mean, if we're wanting to understand it, at this particular time, you know, 8th century B.C., you know, in 1.1 it talks about, or in, in 1.2 it says, Arise, you know, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, well, they did something that was displeasing to God. This text doesn't really tell us what those things are. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't at all. It just says they've done displeasing things. Um, a Bible handbook mm-hmm. may talk more about the historical backdrop of the Assyrians and um, Nineveh in particular, as we know that in this particular time in history, this was about at the apex of the Assyrians' power. Um, what were the things that the Assyrians were known for? They were known for terrible things. Horrible, horrible things. They were not nice people. 
not unlike what we're seeing over in with the conflict between Hamas and Israel right now. Not much different. Different weapons. Yeah. But same, yeah. Different weapons, same thing. Um, they were known for hanging the bodies of their conquered over their city walls so that anyone coming up to the city would know before they even set foot into the city, this is who we are. You're being, meted, you're being met by the bodies of our victims. Yeah, they, they, yeah the historical texts are, are rife with, with um, all the atrocities that the Assyrians committed because to be perfectly honest, the Assyrians were quite proud of the atrocities that they committed. It wasn't like we're trying to hide this. No, we really didn't do this. They, they themselves wrote about it in rather glowing terms. They were proud. The only thing that they seem to regret is that they couldn't do more of it. Does that give, does, cons, does it consulting a historical text or a reference about Nineveh and their historical atrocities, does that put that phrase, their call out against them for their evil has come up against me? Yeah, it could. In my mind, as I, as I see that, you know, so eventually... Jonah gets there, calls out, was it 40 days and you'll be destroyed? The Ninevites say, no, we're, we repent, we turn from this. God shows mercy. Does this put God's mercy into a different context? This is what he relented in his judgment about. Are there, so I see Ken was very, was gracious enough to bring some, some um, resources that he has on Jonah. Are there any? <laughs> Veggie Tales is not in the stack, sorry. Well. That, that, that fine exposition. <laughs> just not part of my library right now. Well, one thing I, I just want to note about the value of some of these extra resources, you know, even if we think we have a pretty good handle on what's in front of us, and we may have a pretty good handle on it truly, mm-hmm. but sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. There and you go. by just opening up something like a commentary or just a different resource can help shed light on things that we just don't even know we're missing. Because we can miss stuff, right? Sure, like you're, absolutely. You're, we, could, we could dissect every single word in Jonah chapter 1 and still miss stuff. And having other eyes of people who have studied it before us uh, can be very, very valuable and, and help us in ways that we just we didn't even know we were messing it. Yeah. So. I, I mean, I can speak for myself on this. I, that's where I have found commentaries and third-party resources to be especially helpful. Because, you know, I can know what I know and I can even know what I don't know. Like, I can have questions in my mind. I just don't know the answer to this. So I'm going to make use of a resource that will hopefully answer this question for me. But where I have found probably the biggest benefit of consulting a third-party a third party resource is, like Ken said, these are people who are much more learned and engaged with the text I don't know what I don't know. And even just by reading a commentary and an insight, I can learn something, oh, I wouldn't even have thought to ask that question of the text. But here it is, and sometimes that, sometimes those things that I don't know that I don't know are, are like the key to understanding this text. It's like understanding that thing that I don't know just made all the puzzle pieces fall together. It's like that one puzzle piece that if I could just get this one piece of the puzzle, everything else would start coming together. 
sometimes that's where I've found the biggest benefit in the in consulting a commentary. You've got looks like you've got one open up there, Ken. Does, are there? Okay, me, I'm gonna snag this Nikot. <laughs> so this this one um, Leslie Allen in the the Nicot had made an observation that there's a certain parallelism in Jonah as a whole. That chapters one and three of Jonah tend to be set more in social situations with other people, with a pagan group, whereas chapters two and four are Jonah in isolation. So it moves from social to isolation, social to isolation. As far as the location of Tarshish, I know there's, there's question historically about it, where exactly Tarshish was, because there is a Tarshish in the New Testament. Saul was from Tarshish, but has a different Tarshish. Right. And this, this, uh, this commentary identifies it as probably southern Spain. Yeah. Which is... That's a that's lot of... Very opposite direction of inland Nineveh yeah. to the east. Uh, to the to the east, whereas he's going Spain towards the west. Well, at that, it, you know, what I think is interesting about that is at that particular time, so 8th century BC, if we're talking the southern tip of Spain, we're talking basically right at the pillars of Hercules, at the, you know, the rocks of, the rock of Gibraltar. At that particular time, that was the edge of the known world. You know, it was believed that if you sailed beyond the pillars, you were leaving the world and you were going to fall off the edge of the earth. Here's a really interesting correlation. New Testament. So I, 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 didn't, I ne this didn't, never popped into my head before. He's in Joppa when he goes and flees. Uh-huh. Do you know what else significant thing happens in Joppa in the New Testament? Off the top of my head, I don't, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. I am. <laughs> It's your lucky day. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, that's where Peter got his vision. Do not call unclean what I have called clean. You can go to the Gentiles. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. The same city where, same city, where yeah. the Lord said to Jonah, go to, Nineveh. Go to the Gentiles. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I never made that connection. No. And this is that you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Value that's. I like that in this commentary, after verse 3, talking about Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, the first sentence in the commentary is, no wonder that he fled. <laughs> <laughs> He, like Moses, refused to take the headship of a great nation while Israel were consumed. Rather, would be, he, he be blotted out of God's book? Hmm. So this, this commentary makes, makes an observation about the nature of Nineveh. Um, it talks about, in accord with the prophetic tradition, Yahweh is represented as the Lord of nations to whom the whole world is held morally accountable. 
If Nineveh is great, God is greater, for he speaks from heaven above. The simple way in which the reason for denouncing Nineveh is, is expressed recalls the divine statement in Genesis 18 concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, an illusion that's to reappear in 3-4. Nineveh is another Sodom, an unhallowed haunt of wickedness meriting destruction. Perhaps the listening circle would be reminded too of Nahum's last words about Nineveh's downfall. So in, and he quotes Nahum 3.19, All who hear the news about you clap their hands at you, for who has not experienced your unremitting wickedness? Unremitting wickedness. So as we make as we make use of these commentaries, and I'm sure we could easily spend another one or two hours going over just these three particular commentaries. So we learn a few things that help us maybe even draw thematic correlation because that observation that, that you had, Ken, about the city of Joppa, well, there's a thematic correlation with what happens in the New Testament. God tells a prof, one of his prophets, go to the Gentiles. And in the New Testament, in the city of Joppa, the Lord, you know, Peter gets his dream, and the Lord tells Peter, an apostle, go to the Gentiles. Again, kind of going back to this idea of maybe the Gentiles were always part of the plan of salvation. You know, we get an idea of maybe the degree of Nineveh's wickedness and also the not just that Jonah is running from the Lord, but the degree to which he's running. He's running to the edge of the known world. You know, about 5,000 miles in the opposite direction to get away. And as we know, it's futile because... You can't flee the presence of the Lord. Jonah sure tried. So, kind of wrapping this up in a, in a nice, tidy little bow in the next minute. How would we sum up, knowing what we know now, how would we sum up the meaning of this text? If we had to sum it up in a sentence, maybe even a Pauline run-on. So fleeing from the Lord is futile. Okay. I mean, I'm... I mean, in my mind, if I had to sum up the meaning, in, in my mind it would be, yeah, in the face of our wickedness, God's mercy is greater. And, and I would even look at it as, like, not saying that there's multiple meanings, but something to kind of keep an eye on, because if, they like said, the date of Jonah, just knowing what we know from Second Kings and kind of where in the, the kings that Jonah is, Jonah is one of the earlier prophets. Um, 
may, not the earliest. I think, I think Isaiah was before. Um, but in the timeline of the prophets, Jonah is one of the earlier prophets. And if we get, if we understand that, okay, there's, there's this idea of go to the Gentiles. You're a prophet of Israel, go to the Gentiles. In my mind, I would want to see kind of a further, uh, anticipate reading further, okay, how, how is God going to continue to deal with the Gentiles? I mean, we, we think, okay, oh, there's going to be judgment, and there certainly is. But this seems to allude to there's not just judgment. So how, how does this continue to unfold as we continue to read through the prophets? All right. Well, so next week where we pick up, we'll pick up on application. That's what the text, you know, this is what the text meant then and there to the people who would have read it and heard it. What does it mean for us today? How do we go from the then and there to the here and now? Knowing that the meaning is going to be the same, the application is going to look a little different. All right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we had to continue digging through the book of Jonah and seeing and understanding all that you would have to show us, all that, all that is revealed within the pages. And Father, we thank you. Once again, we thank you that you have preserved your word for us that you are not unknowable and unknown, but that you are known and knowable, that you reveal yourself, that you make yourself known. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.